What's up, Stitches? Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, or whatever time it is where you are. I hope you're having a nice day. Today we have another interview. This one's more of a conversation because I just have a lot of thoughts and interest in and love for the subject. And that subject is Black American Samplers. I'm talking to Kelly Racine Coles, who's a PhD student at the University of Delaware. I learned about Kelly on Twitter when I was desperately looking for scholars of Black needlework. Little did I know there was someone out there researching Black American schoolgirl samplers. Kelly is a designer, scholar, and curator of Black material culture. Her PhD, which is currently titled Forgotten Childhoods, The Education and Needlework Embroideries of Black Schoolgirls in Antebellum Philadelphia, is all about samplers stitched by Black girls from the late 18th through the mid-19th century. Her work is so, so important, and I truly cannot say that enough. Samplers by Black American girls are in many museums but haven't ever been researched in depth. Kelly has found at least 30 samplers made by Black Americans, which is so awesome. Before our conversation, I only knew about, like, maybe approximately 10 of them. Research all about the childhood needlework of American women of color. We love to see it so, so much. Kelly is supervised by Dr. Tanisha C. Ford, who's a historian of Black historical fashion and culture who's written some really excellent books, including Dressed in Dreams and Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style, and the Global Politics of Soul. Kelly has some wonderful social media, including a website and a blog, that I've posted links to on the So What social media on Instagram and Twitter at So What Podcast. You know this at this point. That's just in case you haven't heard me mention those social media accounts on literally every other episode. Now, I'm obviously not the expert on the subject, but I want to give you all some important historical context because we don't really get into it in our conversation. Slavery existed in America from almost the very beginning of colonization in the New World. The first enslaved individuals were brought to Virginia in 1619. Slavery in the U.S. didn't end until 1863, and even then, slavery didn't actually end. It existed in various forms afterwards, and its legacy is still very much felt today. During that almost 250 years of institutionalized legal slavery in the U.S., black girls were making samplers. Most of the surviving samplers Kelly is looking at were made by black girls who lived in the Mid-Atlantic or New England states and who weren't slaves, but there is at least one example of a sampler made by a black girl who was enslaved, which Kelly mentions in the episode. By studying these objects, Kelly is examining the experiences of both free and enslaved black girls and young women. Black samplers tend to mirror popular contemporaneous needlework styles. A sampler from the African Free School in New York made by Rosina Dizzery in 1820 is framed by sprigs and bouquets of flowers. Dizzery's inscription looks just like that on other samplers from the early 19th century. It's really delicate, written in black thread with a mix of upper and lowercase letters. Another sampler, made by Olivia or Olivia Rebecca Parker at the Lombard Street School in Philadelphia in 1852, is made of Berlin woolwork, which was super popular in the U.S. and Western Europe at the time. Some surviving black samplers also depict buildings, likely the schoolhouses in which they learned to stitch. So there isn't one style or look to black samplers, and why would there be? These samplers were made by girls at schools all over the eastern United States and Canada to an extent, taught by a variety of teachers over many decades. But who were these sampler makers and teachers? Will we ever learn more about these black stitchers? What was the intersection of needlework and race in 18th and 19th century America? Hopefully, Kelly's research will help answer these questions. So there you are, some context and background info on these samplers. And without further ado, here's the interview. 
Nice to meet you. Nice Let's to meet see. you too. Yeah. So, thank you for doing this, even though you have no idea who I am. I am so, so genuinely excited about your work. I like, I just hope, I hope, you know, you just have like this random fan girl out there just like, just, just living her best life because you are living yours. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. I want to start out by saying that I am a person who stutters. So if there's anything that's not clear that you would like me to repeat, just let me know and I'll be glad to do it. And I may do that thank as well if I hear anything. Okay. Thank you. Okay. The big question, the origin story, how did you get interested in textiles and needlework specifically? Yeah. Um, I would say that that is a threefold, like there's a threefold answer to that. I would say, first of all, it's in my DNA, my maternal side of the family. Um, my mom, well, I know how to sew and crochet which I was taught by my mom, who knows how to sew, knit, crochet. She also quilted, who she was taught um, by her mother and her nana, my great grandmother. So it's it's been in our in our genes, and it's it's a love and appreciation that goes back a few generations. Um, I would also say that on top of that, um, going to college, I went to school for interior design and the summer after my freshman year i was looking for a job i knew i liked history and his and um like antique furniture so i found an ad that um the antique dealer m finkel and daughter in philadelphia needed an office person so i interviewed i got the job and i worked for them for quite a few years while i was in college and there is when i learned about antique samplers and needlework and embroideries um so yeah then my love for textiles increased from that then i went to school for historic preservation at university of pennsylvania and um i graduated and i got a job at voith and mctavish architects where along with being an interior designer i was also the materials librarian so i had the opportunity to grow their library and being the lover of textiles that i was i would meet with textile manufacturer representatives and I would find out from them about their new textiles, and then I would learn about other companies, especially more residential type fabrics be because of the projects that we were doing. And I incorporated those companies into the library as well. So my love for textiles just, just, just grew from upholstery fabrics to wall coverings to window treatments. I just reveled in being in that atmosphere. I read on your blog that at this point in your PhD, the PhD will be called Forgotten Girlhoods, the Education and Needlework Embroideries of Black Schoolgirls in Antebellum, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And as we know, and as we've talked about at length, I am stupid excited for your project. Cannot wait. And I guess my question is, how did you choose Philadelphia specifically to focus on? When when I was looking at the schoolgirl needlework samplers um, that that I had found made by black schoolgirls. I found that there were a cluster of them made by schoolgirls in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. There are a few made, made by schoolgirls at the African Free School. And then I have these three made in Philadelphia. I found that there have 
there has been scholarship, not on the needleworks per se, but on the schools mm. for late Sisters of Providence and Baltimore. And there's some scholarship on the African free school, but I found that there, that I, as far as I know, there's not much scholarship on the three schools that I'm looking at in Philadelphia, where these three uh, girls made their needlework samplers. The Negro School, which we believe um, was founded by the Associates of Dr. Bray, which was a London-based hmm. Anglican organization. The Clarkson School, which was established by the Pennsylvania Abolition Society and the Lombard Street School, which was the first public school for children of color in the city of Philadelphia, established by the school district of Philadelphia. So it started there with those three samplers that mm -hmm. were rare and we don't really know anything about, those three girls that we don't know anything about, those three schools that we don't really know anything about. Um, and then the fact that Philadelphia has been written on, like I looked to the work of my previous advisor, Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who, who wrote Fragile Freedom, um, and to uh, works by Julie Winch and Gary Nash, but there hasn't really been any literature or scholarship around black girls in school and girlhood in mm. the city of Philadelphia. So I figured that that would be a nice place for me to make an intervention in the field. Along with that, personally, I have family um, on my mother's side. I have ancestors that we can trace back to the early 1800s in Philadelphia. So um, <laughs> for personal so cool. <laughs> reasons as well, I thought it would be interesting to learn about the black lived experience Mm -hmm. about black girlhood in Philadelphia at a time when after the Revolutionary War people were coming out of enslavement or they were already free so they were trying to figure out and maneuver their way in this new American society trying to figure out how to prosper and how and how to live now as free Americans mm -hmm. um, so you had the birth of the free African society with Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, you had new schools being established by various organizations. And then by the 1830s, you have the color convention to start, that started in Philadelphia, where the black communities were coming together in a formal way and fighting for social justice and for better education for themselves and their children for the right to have representation if they went to court, all those types of things that we are still fighting for today. They started mm -hmm. fighting for back then. So to look at Phil Philadelphia at that time period and a black girl's experience, black women's experiences, I thought would be an intervention in the field that I could make through looking at these samplers made by black schoolgirls. That is brilliant. The three samplers, where are they? I don't, I feel like I've come across maybe one from Philadelphia, but I don't know if I've come across all three. Right. So, um, Olivia Rebecca Parker's, which was stitched in 1852, is hanging in Winterthur's downstairs gallery. And Mary DeSilvers is also there. That's the one that was stitched in 1793. Um, hers was in the gallery, but I believe it's back up in 
textile storage, mm -hmm. but it was in the gallery for a short time. It's a very tiny one. And then the third one is in private collection in Philadelphia. In what parts of colonial America were Black girls making samplers? I've seen examples, and I think you mentioned examples from Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore, I think, mm -hmm. Maryland. Um, are there other outliers or other examples, or are you really just finding samplers from those three cities? So, um, right. In addition to those, to Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore, Maryland, I also found some from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Ohio, Ohio, Louisiana, and then outside of the U.S., but still in North America, there's one in Nova Scotia that I just learned about, I think, year before last. In total so far, I found 30. <gasps> and then one additional one, which I, that's 30 made by Black schoolgirls. There's one more made by a, a Black school teacher, a male. 30. So you have 30 made by Black schoolgirls in addition to one Black school teacher? Mm -hmm. Wow, that is a lot. And is it a mix of, are they at public museums and private institutions, private owners? Because I just haven't come across that many. Right. Um, quite a few are with the Oblate Sisters of Providence. Uh-huh, okay. And then for the ones that I have, the other ones where I even have the institution here, they're all public institutions, but like a couple. The Cooper Hewitt Museum, Winterturk, Colonial Williamsburg, New York Historical Society, Oblate Sisters of Providence Collection, Maryland Historical Society, Connecticut Historical Society, oh. Houston Museum of Fine Arts, Baltimore Museum of Art, Louisiana State Museum. Yeah. Wow, we okay. Wow, that is wild because I just didn't. I've only come across the ones that I think are very publicly accessible online. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I had only maybe I had known maybe a total of ten to twelve. Mm -hmm. So there, wow, that is very exciting. Yeah, I took time. Maybe this was last summer, um, and I went through almost every book, pretty much every book, and UDs library on samplers to find any made by black school girls. So that's how this list has jumped up to 30. That is <laughs> um, awesome. On on top of doing presentations and asking people if, mm -hmm. if they know of any to let me know. And I've had a, a few people come to me afterwards and tell and tell me about ones that they know of. That's that's also been helpful. That's really cool. And I do find that is one of those things like with samplers, especially if you're looking at samplers that are like looking for samplers that are not your typical uh, young white girl in New England or 17th century England. Like it is it is a word of mouth thing between yes, dealers and just random people who happen to know these like delightful outliers. So that's right. There are probably so many more out there that we don't know about. Right. I mean, I hope, but also I want them to, I want them to come out of the woodwork and into your knowledge and general public consciousness. Yeah. That would be yes. very cool. Yes, through, this, through, 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 pub, through public knowledge of my research, I hope that people will, you know, come to me and say, yes, I know of one. It may, it may be hanging in my house, my grandmother's house, 
I know of one that may be in so-and-so's attic. Yeah. I hope <laughs> this, <it> is. <laughs> I hope this podcast will also help that, yeah. I don't know, some sort of small word of mouth that this podcast allows. We'll yeah. get to somebody who happens to have one or know of one mm. or something. Let, okay, I'm going to cross my fingers. I yes. can cross all of my toes as well. Here we mm. go. That is mm. my goal. Do you have, okay, this is a two-part question, kind of based on a question I had on this list. Mm-hmm. Do you have favorites amongst those samplers? And also, do you have favorite pieces of needlework that aren't in that group of samplers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, let's see. I would say the my, I, I don't really have a favorite, but there is one that I really love the um, meaning of behind it. And mm-hmm. that's the one made by Sarah and Major Harris, married name Fair, Fairweather. Sarah Harris made a um, family record sampler. <gasps> between, yeah, between 1826 and 1828. And it features her parents at the top, their names and the day that they were married. And then underneath are the names of her and her siblings, each laid out in their own like octagonal cartouche, they call it, um, with their names and their birth dates. Yeah, I love that for the 1830s to be able to, first of all, stitch that in a, it's it's a like neutral colored plain linen ground with Mm -hmm. silk threads, that are like green and blue and gold um, oh. to 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 be able to stitch that and to just celebrate your family, like to celebrate black love, black unity, a black family. I love be, being able to do that, her being able to do that at a time when black love, black families, that was not being celebrated overall in society. And she's and she's the one who integrated Prudence Crandall School. That happened in 1832, so after she made the sampler, but she's like she she was an activist for her time. And that sampler just also speaks to 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 her and to what she was about. That is As a young black girl. Yeah. That is <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is so poignant. That makes me so emotional and speaks volumes. Oh. I love her. What is her name? She has four names. Sarah and yeah, Sarah Ann Major Harris. And then her married name was Fairweather. Great name, Fairweather. Well, that is wonderful. And I so love the idea and just the like, yeah, black love, black unity and black community that yes. that wasn't, you know, the US made that not a possibility and she made it she and her teacher and that community of girls and women who were being educated made that for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she took and celebrated it and celebrated it. And she, and the fact that she did not just celebrate herself, but also her entire family and her lineage and her, yeah. her community is I'm emotional. <laughs> <laughs> that is the coolest thing and most powerful thing I've heard in a really long time when it comes to work I that's 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 another reason why I think having people 
celebrating these samplers is so important be, because it's something that we don't know about. And it's, and it's another way to showcase how black girls and young women were very active in their communities after the Revolutionary War, starting, I'm sure, I'm sure they were also active before then, but at least through these samplers, we find how active they were at this point, at this point in time. As, as they were coming out of ensla in, enslavement and learning how to be and learning how they wanted to be black American girls. They, you're so right. Like they made it for themselves yes. and these samplers are the proof. Mm -hmm. They're stitched documents of making your, making yourself when your home country won't do it for you. Mm-hmm. I'm hyped. I'm jazzed. Thank you. Wow. Okay. That's a really good favorite. I had no idea about this. I'm experiencing some real joy. Thank you for this opportunity. You're welcome. <laughs> wow. Okay. That is a, that is a very solid favorite. Uh, do you have any runners up or is she your one gal, which is totally fair if she is. I also like appreciate Mary the Silvers, which for the longest time we thought was the earliest known sampler stitched by a black schoolgirl, And that's only be because of its size and the simplicity of it. Mm. But then on top of that, you have this quote that is also very powerful because she's saying how, I can't think of the exact words, but if, if you cast your eyes around the world, everyone is equal pretty much is, is mm. what she's saying. I like that energy. It's some real 2020 energy. Right. And, and, and to be saying that, to have stitched that into a sampler in 1793 is. <laughs> yeah. Very bold. Again, very, very bold. bold, but it, but obviously it's something that she wanted to do and, or her teacher, um, believed in and therefore took the time to stitch into the sampler with, with her name, her age, and the school that she was attending. And you say that for a long time it was thought to be the earliest. So there is an earlier one? I don't know about this. So I was reading Jean Fagan's essay, But All the Women Are Brave. Side note here, Kelly wanted me to let you all know that the book is actually titled But Some of Us Are Brave, and that is the book in which Jean Fagan Yellen's article appears. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, her, it's her essay in that book, and she mentions Phoebe Cash, a sampler by Phoebe Cash that was made when she was 14 in 1789. And I believe she was an enslaved, is this the one? She she was owned by widow Mrs. Sarah Kent Atkins, wife of Dudley Atkins, Esquire of Newbury, Massachusetts. Whoa, so she made this while enslaved? Yes. It seems that way. Holy heck. And it's also, oh, so Jean Fagan's essay in But All the Women Were Brave cites Bolton and Co.'s book, American Sampler. So that's where Jean Fagan gets it from. Because Jean Fagan is basically saying, it's it's crazy. <laughs> I'm putting <laughs> words in her mouth, but. <laughs> I love that. Hey, yes, I'm here for it. I support. She's saying, right. She, <laughs> She's saying that it's amazing that we have these samplers stitched by black girls and black women that no one has looked at to better understand the black 
women and girls experience in the U.S. And she was saying that, when, when was that book published? In the 1980s? Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. Yes. Which I thought was also amazing. Like, yeah, I'm here. I can do that for you. <laughs> 30 years later, someone has come through. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly, for being here today. Yeah, that's wild. Okay, I had no idea about that. I have to look in the Bolton & Co. book again. That mm -hmm. That is so interesting. And mm -hmm. again, like very emotional. That That is, there's a lot to think about with that. The idea that an enslaved girl was making a sampler mm -hmm. and i mean she, that she could have been going to school right had her attending school at some point in time where she learned that or maybe she learned from mrs sarah kent atkins well it makes a lot of sense like of course you're gonna and want for her mother mm. can't leave her out <laughs> yeah there you go i mean it makes a lot of sense that like you're gonna want if you've enslaved people who you're going to have to do all the work, they're going to be including, they're going to be stitching initials onto household linens. They're going to be darning things. Like it would make sense that you'd really want your, your, you know, enslaved individuals to uh, be as good at stitching as they possibly could be. So I, I, that, I mean, it's something I haven't thought about before, but it does spookily make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. And that makes one think, I mean, I think a lot of, every day I think about this with needlework and these samplers specifically, how many of these samplers were around and have been lost to time because, yes. you know, history is brutal and oftentimes women's work was not valued. So like, why would you keep it? And especially if it's the sampler of an enslaved person, I'm sure that that went with them, you know, like, once they were gone, their property was too. Like, I, that feels like a really rare survival of something that may have existed in much larger numbers. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could be just completely. And that's, and that's where my, my um, committee has also um, put the idea out there for me to also think brighter, for me to also think wider, to mm. think of other textiles that they could have stitched into. So, along with Phoebe making the sampler, she could have been stitching the family's name into other linens within sure. in the house. For, for that, for all we know, may still exist somewhere. Yeah, 100%. That has been passed down in the family. <laughs> and the family may not even know, they may or they may not know who initially stitched their right. name or whatever it may be into the linens. And there she is, like her stuff is still there, just lurking in the shadows and hasn't been rediscovered or looked at i yeah mm. yeah there's a lot i think that's the the thing about textiles and needlework and women's work generally is like they're and this is something that i was talking about with rose sinclair in her interview she was talking about the power of the archive and it's true there yes. is so much stuff in archives in museum collections that there's just too much to look at for too few people looking at it so there's always going to be that stuff that we don't find but hopefully we will be the people to find it. Yes. I yes. like, uh, I don't know about you, but I think one of the reasons I like this stuff so much is because it is a mystery that keeps on giving. Like there is always more stuff to dis yes. discover. Yes. Mm. There's Love so it. much that has been ignored and just not thought about, just not thought about the possibility of 
women's work of needlework by black girls or black women being important and worth digging into and researching to learn more about. So here we are. (laughs) Here you specifically are. Here's me in the background shouting, (laughs) yay, and yes, but I mean, you are leading you are leading this charge that has been a really long time coming and a really important thing. And I hope that I have to hope that your work, which has been, I mean, like, thank you for doing it because really it needed to happen. It's needed to happen for a really long time, but hopefully you also inspire a bunch of other people yeah, to get in on this too. Cause I can't do it all by myself. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, as we, we were talking about, like there's the things can get broader and broader and there you, you can just keep looking at it forever, but mm-hmm. it, you are, yeah, you will be the leader, but you shouldn't right. be the only one. Hopefully other people will join in on this. Right. Because like the other thing that I thought about that I would love to learn more about, even though I don't know if I will ever have time, but for instance, I just learned a few years ago that there was a community of Afro-Mexicans. I'm sure they had textiles. Oh, 100%. And I also recently learned that there were schools in the Caribbean teaching girls. I'm sure they also learned needlework. Where's all, like, I'd love Where's to make those that? connections. Yeah. I would love to find those and make the connections between, you know, African women of, of the diet. This leads well into the next question, which is the question I love asking people because I really just genuinely love hearing their answers. And the mm-hmm. question is, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world and society? It's a big question. It is a big question. It plays, I think it plays a historical and a contemporary role. If, if you could say it's, it's a form of meditation, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's a window into women's artistry and creativity that is oftentimes ignored, especially for Black women. Agreed. Um, especially historically. Mm-hmm. And it is also a form of activism, as we've, talk, as we've talked about. And we still see today through the, the new term, or at least fairly recent new term of craftivism. Right. <laughs> and yes. yarn bombing, for instance, that has become very popular here, even here in Newark. <laughs> All right, Delaware. Yes. Um, Happy to see you here, Delaware. Hello, hello. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think I, I think it can play many roles now today. Um, in the fact of it being just just being able to take part in performing the needlework is meditative. It, it allows you to think about your work. It allows you to think just to ruminate on your own thoughts, whether it's on that actual needlework or, or what's going on in the world around you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's a way to showcase your own cre- cre- creativity, which harks, harks back to what our maternal ancestors, I shouldn't say that because there were men who sewed too, yeah. our, the way that our ancestors were able to also, when it may have been smothered or when they may have not been allowed to 
express their art, their artistry, their create, their creativity on a public setting, mm-hmm. in a public setting, needlework was a way that they could do it personally. Mm-hmm. And in the form of activism, show that they are capable of doing it because even though it's a it's a solitary act those needlework pieces then go out into the world and are used whether it's in the house or in in a public setting sure yes what a good answer and one that really speaks to the multiplicity of stories that come with these objects i think sometimes for me at least it's easy to just think of girls stitching at home you know next to their fireplace in their parlors or whatever right that is such a limited and deeply untrue image of i mean that is um you know a very small fraction of society probably like you know your your classy rich um white americans and british people doing that and like that speaks to almost nobody's reality so i think you say it so correctly like it is meditative. It does tell stories. It is involved in activism. But I think what really gets me is it's public and it's private. It's both. And it's it's everywhere. These people, their, their names and sometimes their dates and ages and locations and all of these things are right there waiting for us to grab onto them and, t- you know, uh, wipe the layer of dirt off of them that kind of history has added to them as mm-hmm. they kind of fall away but I think they're right there for us to learn about and I think you are bringing back and rediscovering one of the most oppressed groups in American history they're still the most oppressed group and you are bringing them back to life and you are think through that you are doing exactly what um the sampler the Mary Ann Majors Harris sampler does and you're reharnessing that it's coming full circle you're reharnessing the black love and the black unity and they've i think the samplers have been waiting that sounds so corny but it's true (laughs) (laughs) i honestly i do feel like because of my story it feels like i hear people say how they do things and things just fall into place i do feel like my path, especially once I decided to come back to school, it, it it has really felt like things have just fallen into place. Like one thing on top of the other on, you know, from being fully funded to yes. meeting Linda Eaton again, and then her putting me back in touch with Amy Finkel, who I had previously worked with, like all these things. It, it's, it's just like eerie. It's just like, Okay, God. <laughs> hey, yeah. God's like, hey, listen, Kelly, like, I know your destiny. You don't know yet, but, like, it's coming for you. Right, right. I mean, it I... truly feels that way. And and then to be able to meet that I, to, to meet the people that I have along the way who have just helped me along, it's it's been amazing. How do we learn Our more skills. about Kelly Cole? Well, I do have two events coming up the second half of the year Um, the textile society of america symposium hidden stories human lives i am supposed to give a presentation sometime between october 15th and october 17th okay symposium it will be online of course thank you covid um 
And that will be on my research to that point in time. Yes. And then in November, on November 6th at 6 p.m., also online, I will be in conversation with my AFI fellow sister, Molly Collins-White, and the director of the Jane and Littleton Mitchell Center for African American Heritage. Heck yeah. Um, the director, Stephanie Lamkin. Yeah, so this this um, will be a part of their New Directions Black Motherhood, Black, Girl, Black Girlhood program. Oh, well, that sounds very apt. Kelly, yeah. you're a gem. Like, seriously, you thank you. Oh, my God, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this, seriously. And thank you for being willing to meet me, even though you've 100% never met me in real life. It's been, like, cool. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. There it is, my conversation with Kelly Coles. I hope you liked it and learned a lot. I know I did. As I mentioned in the interview, Kelly's work is really, really important. Samplers by Black schoolgirls in American schools have been in museums and archives just waiting for their stories to be told. It's essential to research these girls and their teachers and to celebrate them and their works, and to research and write about and celebrate that Black love and Black family that's present in these samplers. It's honestly such an honor and joy to know and speak to the scholar who is doing this groundbreaking, monumentally important work. What a treat! Oh, so good. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Now go out and stitch some stories and look at some samplers made by Black schoolgirls. Bye! Bye!